There continues to be fallout from the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, and more specifically in the red states controlled by Republicans. And nowhere is that more the case than in Texas, where a woman named Kate Cox has been forced into the Republican fantasy, which is to plead with a judge for the ability to have any sort of exception to Texas's law, which basically eliminates all abortions with no exceptions other than for the life of the mother. And so she had a fetus that had been determined to have some severe genetic abnormalities. Non-viable, yeah. Fetus. And be non-viable, so basically would die within hours of birth. And she also had some risks to herself as well. Her health, not her life. And according to Republicans, that's not good enough. And then the Texas Attorney General, whose name is Ken Paxton, he threatened any doctor who would perform the procedure for her and appealed the case to the Texas Supreme Court. And they issued a unanimous verdict against her saying that she should not have the ability to have an abortion. And so she left the state and went elsewhere to get that procedure. The, the American right has become so horrible and so fascistic that the scope of the evilness is sometimes hard to believe that people actually are doing this. And in Texas, they've already done it. Yeah. And to talk a little bit about the Texas Supreme Court. So this has been an ongoing thing, and the court was already aware that Kate Cox was very likely going to leave the state, right? That this issue had become enough of a threat to her health. They could have declined to hear the case, but I think it says so much when you said earlier the kind of conservative dream, which is that this woman has to throw herself at the mercy of a body of conservatives, basically, and plead for them to allow her to do what she needs to do for her body and health and future and family. And that, I think, is what they signified when they decided to take on this case, because by the time they actually issued that verdict, she had left the state. So I'm sure that she and her counsel realized that there was very little likelihood that they were going to get the outcome that they wanted. It, it yeah, feels like a choice that they made. To, Paxton. Yeah. Yeah. She, it felt, feels like a choice that they made to take on that case was to send a message. Also, I think the other thing about this is that so often conservatives have been trying to change the language now that they realize that this is such a losing issue for them, that they are, are now talking about maybe putting the goalposts in a different place so that maybe the laws don't seem so harsh. I mean, the reality is when they say and when they created these laws, they understood that even when they said that there would be exceptions in certain cases for women's health, right? Or, you know, the health of the, if the health of the baby, if the, if the fetus was non-viable. They honestly didn't really mean that. I mean, what, what we've learned through this case is that in Texas, there are no exceptions, right? I mean, the, her doctor said very specifically that there was a threat to her ability to, to her fertility in the future, right? If that is, that should be something mm -hmm. that the court would care about. And they didn't because they don't actually care. I mean, if, if the caveat that it poses is that you could only get an abortion if it, quote, poses a serious risk of substantial impairment of a major bodily function to a woman, a, a pretty major bodily function is whether or not you can carry a child again. 
And so the fact that they disregarded this just tells pretty much anyone, any woman in Texas who is seeking some sort of a health waiver that it's not actually available to them, that they yeah. will, you know, they will ensure that the decision making is theirs and does not belong to the mother. Yeah. The other thing about this is that so before the court court's ruling in the in the Dobbs versus Jackson case to overturn a, a national right to abortion, a lot of pro-choice advocates were out there saying, please, can we pass some laws to protect women's rights in the case, in the event that Roe goes down? Please, will you please pay attention to this stuff? And nobody in the mainstream media paid them any attention. They just said they were alarmist, that they were just trying to make money or grift or hyping stuff, exaggerating, whatever you want to call it. They said all those things and nobody believed them. And then ever since the Dobbs ruling, we've had a lot of different right-wing people, politicians have been trying to, again, downplay and gaslight people to say that there's no risk to people's rights and that this, no, this wouldn't happen. This is not going to happen. No one's ever going to do this. And they just, that's the playbook is just lie and pretend that they are reasonable and rational. And we're seeing that now with regard to birth control, that now you have people like J.D. Vance out there going out there and saying, oh, no Republican I talk to is interested in eliminating birth control for women. And fortunately, when he was on talking with Jake Tapper on CNN, Tapper actually called him and he said, well, hey, I can give you a list of them if you want. And then, of course, Vance was like, oh, no, I'm not interested in that. I also think we have to win the trust back of the American people. And one of the ways to do that is to be the truly pro-family party. I think we are. We've got to carry that message forward and actually enact some public policy to that effect. Does, is birth control part of that policy, uh, empowering women to be able to make those decisions before they get pregnant? Look, obviously people need to be able to make those decisions. I don't think that I know any Republican, at least not a Republican with a brain that's trying to take those rights away from people. Uh, but I think it goes deeper than that. I mean, where, I could provide a list for you if you wanted. Well, OK, not, not anybody I talk to. Jake, but so they don't it, want you to know what they want. They have to lie. And it's a silly thing to say when we literally had a decision from the Supreme Court a, <laughs> where unsolicited Justice yeah. uh, Clarence Thomas brought up the fact that he would be very interested in revisiting decisions and precedent around same-sex unions and around birth mm-hmm. control. So when you have jurists on the highest court saying, just so you know, I'd be interested <laughs> in maybe overturning that. I mean, there, that, then obviously we do have conservatives that are very interested in that, particularly those who can affect the law and who legislate from the bench. The other thing is what it reveals is how little these lawmakers who are so interested and so invested in the topic of abortion, how much that is divorced for them from women's health and women's biology, right? Do you know how many actual women suffer miscarriage? Yeah. Actual women's health, right? I mean, it is a it is a topic mm-hmm. that they, for them, those things are, they should be completely interrelated when you're talking about abortion. For them, it isn't. If we, you know, women are very aware of, especially in recent years, as uh, women online have been much more open about the kind of things that they, for for a very long time, suffered in silence. So many women suffer miscarriages. These are women who want to be pregnant, who want to carry the term, 
so many women suffer miscarriages before they are out of the first trimester. Pregnancy itself mm -hmm. is an incredibly difficult thing. I mean, when you start to talk about what happens to women's bodies during pregnancy, there is a tremendous toll that it takes on women's bodies, right? And then talking about maternal mortality. So the, there is a real aspect of, it's not just that people who are reproductive justice advocates are lying when they say abortion is a form of healthcare. Abortion is a form of healthcare and always has been. And that mm. is a thing that's so often lacking around in this discourse. And I think that this case is another one that illuminates just how true that is, no matter how much the right denies it. Yeah. And then it, it has, unfortunately, has to take these court cases to get people to even continue to pay attention to it in any real and meaningful way. So that when people say, look, you are going to force people to bear their rapist baby. That's a serious and awful, horrible thing. And I think for some people, when they hear that, it just goes in one ear and out the other. And it's only when there are actual court cases like that girl in Ohio that had been raped and, and the right wing insisted that nothing like that ever happens. That's completely fabricated. And of course, it was all real. And they, they don't want you to have to think about these difficult circumstances. And yet they ensure you know, that they constantly will by creating legislation that means that these cases arise. Yeah. And so it's constantly on my radar. I mean, the, the if they had only yeah. done the calculations, the math would have mathed for them before they pushed this to the Supreme Court and got this decision that basically has been, in terms of electoral politics for them, pretty devastating. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting, the, the, if you remember during the Obamacare, initial Obamacare uh, discussions when Barack Obama was the president, that there was this big right-wing furor around and misinformation about death panels that they believe people were going to have to, they were outraged at the idea that people would have to go and beg for health care choice and, and the ability to receive the health care that they wanted. They said that that was horrible and a terrible idea. But in fact, that is exactly what they have done in Texas. Mm -hmm. So that very thing that they claim, it was the centerpiece of Republican messaging really in, in 2012 and many years after that. And they want death panels. They want them. And it's just like, People have, you have to shove this in their face in public debates and things like that. They, they don't want, they have to lie about their agenda. They have to pretend that their reactionism is conservatism. Uh, yeah. And that's and what they're going to do if you let them. In terms uh, of lying about their agenda, another example of that is, so we are heading into the second week of the conversation that has been swirling around the congressional hearing that happened on anti-Semitism, and it was a House committee, subcommittee hearing on anti-Semitism on campus. And there's been a, the right mostly has attacked the three presidents. It was, there was a president, the president, all three were women, the president of MIT, the president of Penn State, and the president of Harvard. And I think in terms of the clips that were circulating on social media, it wasn't the best look in terms of the kind of lawyerly way in which they answered those questions. The discourse involving these college presidents and particularly their interactions with at least Stefanik, uh, the New York representative, it's, it's, it's also completely dishonest as well because the right wing basically under Trump put forward a bunch of different 
binding executive orders on institutions receiving federal funding, which they said were designed to preserve free speech on campus mm -hmm. and to be regulations to force the colleges and universities getting federal funds to be more permissive toward offensive speech. Right. Well, of course, anti-Semitism is offensive speech. And so the wording that these college presidents were using in the hearing, they had been advised clearly by their attorneys to answer in the way that they did so that they wouldn't risk running afoul of these laws that the Republicans subjected them to. And so now that they did that, now they're being condemned for obeying the very laws that the Republicans told them that they must obey. But of course, right. we realize in retrospect that, they, that basically they wanted to carve out an exception to hate speech against anti-Semitism. And obviously, I think universities should not tolerate anti-Semitic actions and behavior from students. But nonetheless, the fact that they had any pressure at all to even come within a mile of that was because of Republicans. And we have to point that out, I feel like. Well, these are the these are the same people that I feel like many of them are, they constantly tweeted Elon Musk and sort of have these back and forth with Elon Musk. They've been supporters of Elon Musk after he was accused of anti-Semitism. And there was that whole sort of departure, mass exodus of advertisers. I mean, if these people actually cared about anti-Semitism, not just on campuses, but anywhere, they would definitely yeah, yeah. not be allies of, or supporters of, and pretty vocal supporters of a guy who said the Jews did it to themselves. Exactly. That's who they are. And I think one of the things that we've seen is the shift this week is that the conversation has moved from the right saying they are, are inadequately disposed to deal with anti-Semitism on their campus to saying, and specifically the president of Harvard um, should be, Claudine Gay, should be removed. They've started to say that it's because she's unqualified because she just never should have been there, right? So Christopher Rufo, who it, it seems like comes up every single week, earlier this week or a few days ago, put out what he called a, a bombshell tweet that claimed that Dr. Gay had been, had basically plagiarized much of her doctoral dissertation. Um, she got her PhD from Harvard. And mm -hmm. I just, it's so classic, I think, that they've, what initially started out as a conversation about why these three presidents should be removed that was happening under the guise of conservatives caring about anti-Semitism has now focused solely on gay and is now about why she is unqualified and is essentially an affirmative action hire, mm -hmm. which is so, so classic, right? I mean, these are the, a lot well, of the same people I mean, that, we saw that were very involved in the movement to get rid of affirmative action. What? Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, well, one of them did resign voluntarily. So the McGill, the McGill uh, president volunteered. Well, I couldn't yeah, call it voluntarily, but yes, she, she resigned. Yeah. Yes. Under duress. Yeah. But it, it never fails that when you have a black person who is in a prominent position, the right will always decide that they are unqualified and that they are only there because of race. I mean, the people who have been pushing mm -hmm. this, aside from Christopher Rufo, I think ben, Ish, ben Shapiro put out a statement. The Wall Street Journal did an op-ed about it. Alan Dershowitz, who, which what's amazing is Alan Dershowitz has been 
incredibly accused of all kinds of plagiarism in his books. I mean, lifting huge passages. There's an, mm -hmm. a really great, you can easily find it on YouTube, um, moment from 2005 when Norman, Norman Finkelstein just basically just like turns him into his whipping boy. I mean, it's absurd. And uh, I just think it's, it's so hilarious that these people who we spent 380 some odd years having a Harvard that had never had a black person and certainly not a black woman as president. And in all that time, there's, they don't have a single thought that maybe there was some sort of affirmative action that was in place for white men. I mean, we've, again, I, I get so tired of saying it, but we have always had identity politics in this country. It's just that the identity that was centered was whiteness and maleness. And it was always, there was always a tacit understanding before a, a lengthy period, it was spoken out loud that these positions could only be held mm -hmm. by white men. And, and then more recently, and more recently that there, there was a tacit understanding that they could only be held by white men, right? So the idea that these DI, DEI programs, which are so under attack, are letting in unqualified minorities. And the message that you always get as a black person in this country is that if you are failing, it is because of the inherent pathology of blackness, right? It is a group that is mm. self-defeating. They are constantly consigned. A deficient the culture. Bottom of the, 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 bottom, the bottom of the racial order through their own failures and their, sort of their like innate inadequacies. And yet when black people excel, right? And even if they have on paper, you can look at what they have achieved. And this woman... Really, I am, I'm sorry, I am gonna read her resume because I took some notes on it. She went to Phillips Exeter, she got her BA at Stanford. While she was there, she won the prize for the best undergraduate thesis. She got her PhD from Harvard. She was a professor at Stanford, then she was a professor at Harvard. And then she became the first black person, certainly first black woman to be president of Harvard. None of these people have achieved even a sliver of that. Just as a contrast, and Christopher Rufo's credential is that he was a fellow at a creationist think tank. Well, it's funny that you bring that up because Christopher Rufo, one of the things his Manhattan Institute bio used to say, and I'm not sure if it's still there, was that he had a master's degree from Harvard. He actually has a master's degree from Harvard Extension School, which is a place mm -hmm. that has an open enrollment and it allows folks to have a connection to Harvard, but for folks who maybe couldn't get into Harvard College, the, the credits that you get from Harvard Extension, you can't even use at Harvard, right? They don't qualify you to attend Harvard College. They're non-transferable. So yeah. the idea that this isn't based on some deep-seated jealousy, and again, I think that Christopher Rufo is an incredibly poisonous person, and this uh, idea that he has, I think, is one that's very like whiteness, zero-sum whiteness and white supremacy in this country is very steeped in this idea that if black folks are doing something and they're having any success at it, something is it's definitely illegitimate. being stolen. Yeah. yeah, well, and it's it's also that, and maybe some of it also extends to that this is, again, another instance of every accusation being a confession because, I mean, you look at the black people who are promoted by Republicans, in their political and media system. You, I mean, look at who they ran for Senate. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but that, yeah, uh, I actually wrote a piece uh, about this. That they very specifically went and found someone 
who represented, well, but who they thought represented blackness. I mean, that's why they ran him, right? Because Raphael Warnock actually does have a doctorate. doctorate. He actually has written multiple books. He actually is an intellectual. But their idea of blackness and what they thought they could run against him was Herschel Walker, who is a failure on every front and who didn't even have the intellectual capacity to debate him. Yeah, although, but I'm saying, though, I think to some extent, maybe subconsciously, they know that they're, that they admit that Herschel Walker could barely string a sentence together. And and then when you look at the, the black commentators, quote unquote, who exist in the right, Diamond and Silk, you've got uh, members of Congress, Byron Donalds. And I mean, you just go down the line, almost none of these prominent black Republicans in, in, in the present moment have any sort of quality. Candace Owens, like, again, these people have no experience they have no degrees they have they've not written anything of consequence they have literally done nothing but run their mouths in a a loud and offensive and denigrating manner that's all they've done and they've said the right things and it doesn't matter how dumb they are in in the case of diamond and silk or Herschel walker they have no qualifications and so because the fact that that's so nakedly cynical with regard to black achievement on the right they think that that's how it is for everybody else and for every other black person, I would think. Yeah, you, I mean, you, I would argue that it's it's that that it's also what you're saying. I'm not saying it's not really that. do. Yeah, really do think that that is the sum of blackness. I it think that this idea that somehow black people are getting something they don't deserve is kind of at the heart of this story from Kate Corain. And I I know that maybe some of our listeners are not on a book talk or who aren't really watching debut novels as they happen. But this has been all over my timeline for the last week. Just to introduce you to this, Kate Corain is an author. She does sci-fi fantasy. She had a book that was going to come out that was supposed to be published in May 2024. And that is not happening because it turns out she made a bunch of fake Goodreads accounts. And Again, if you're not familiar with Goodreads, it's a site where you can go and rate books and leave a little comment about how you felt about it. But she made all these fake accounts basically so that she could review bomb other folks who had 2024 debut books. And she specifically gave their names to these phony reviewers, things like Chantal B and Osei Young, which makes them sound like POC. Right. Um, and she gave one star reviews to a bunch of authors. Molly Chang was one of them, Bethany Baptiste, Camilla Cole, KMN Wright. I'm not going to go through all of them, but a fair including amount of people them. people from the same publisher. Including, um, yes. <laughs> and a fair amount of them were people of color. Uh, and the one book that those fake accounts consistently gave five star reviews to was her upcoming debut. And apparently, Behind the scenes, a lot of these debut writers were part of this Slack where they were just kind of chatting with each other. When they noticed that the, these fake reviews went up, they tried to, and they deduced that it was her, they tried to settle it behind the scenes. She claimed that she had this friend named Lily who was posting the reviews. Yeah. But finally, she copped to what she'd done and said that she'd been struggling with depression and alcoholism. She was fighting a losing battle against depression, alcoholism, and substance abuse. And got on some new medication. She tried a new medication in November and that she had a complete psychological breakdown and that that is the reason that she created all these online accounts to to 
to downgrade her fellow authors. And so she has, when this news emerged, she's since been dropped by her publisher, which is Del Rey, which is a imprint of Penguin, Random House. Her UK publisher also dropped her. And her, just the other day, her agent announced that she she was dropping her. But I, I don't think, the thing that really struck me about this is one, there is no medication that makes you racist. And we've seen this before where people say, oh, I, I took some sleeping pills and that thing that I wrote, I can't believe I, I wrote it, but you know, I took Ambien and I wrote that after I took Ambien. Like there is no racist <laughs> Ambien. I mean, she certainly was really good to try, really good at trying to cover her tracks. And for someone who was completely detached from reality, seemed to think of a lot of things that she needed to do to make sure that she yeah. wouldn't be caught. The other, but I also, it made me really think of this. There's a really fantastic essay by Jenny Zhang. It's, a, it's, it's, it's old at this point, it's from 2015. It's called, They Pretend to Be Us While Pretending We Don't Exist. And I, I thought I, that essay is just one of my favorite pieces of writing ever, but, she, Jenny Zhang, is an Asian writer who talks about the way that she's rendered both hypervisible and invisible at the same time. A lot of the things she got told while she was in like the Iowa Writers Program, where a white guy said to her, "Gosh, you're you're so lucky. It sucks for me. Like I'm not going to get very many opportunities because I'm a white guy." The fact that sort of people dismiss her work as being. Um, autobiographical and they were actually stories that she made up. They couldn't conceive of someone who was writing about like an Asian person who was about her age and was that, that she was somehow doing it creatively. It had to be her just delivering her memories onto the page. I mean, and, and mm -hmm. just that idea that somehow, again, that people will have it easier. I think that what Kay Karim was thinking is that she was somehow at a slight disadvantage because these POC who had new books that were coming out were going to get more attention by virtue of the fact that they were POC and that this was somehow a way of her, her insecurities that were nagging at her, were, this is the way to level the playing field. And I think it, it just speaks so much of the way whiteness makes assumptions about the instant that someone else gets a little bit of ground, if it's not always completely about you, that somehow you're losing. And in fact, she had so much more interest than so many of the other authors. I mean, she had these multiple deals. She'd been picked for all these highly visible things that were supposed to happen to her in 2024. Obviously, they're all dissolved now. Mm -hmm. But she was getting this kind of undue attention that probably should have been doled out to some of the other authors and isn't happening now. But I, would, I, I wish that authors of color got half of that kind of attention. Yeah, well... Yes, maybe she can get a deal with the Daily Wire now. <laughs> the idea that denigrating uh, other people, that it would somehow make you look better by comparison. It really wouldn't because chances are most people wouldn't have seen, if they saw your thing, they probably wouldn't have even necessarily seen the other people that she was degrading. Like there's no connection in any way with these authors that she really wasn't, even with her own racial insecurities or and, and other just sort of general hatred, it, it wouldn't have done any, her really any good. It also brings up questions about like, what is the role of Goodreads and are they doing, because some of those, she had put some of these reviews up as far, they, it goes as far back as April, 2023. I know that. So when some mm -hmm. of these like one, so during, during I mean, the Goodreads, previous breakdown, <laughs> people have, people have, 
talked before about the problem with Goodreads and the fact that you can kind of game the system. Like there are fandoms that go on Goodreads and before books are even released, they downvote them so that they'll have a worse shot. And one, I don't think people should be able to review books before that they've before they've been publicly released. Like even if you have an advanced copy, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be able to do that. But just what kind of due diligence does Goodreads do to ensure that the people who are voting on these books, that there are people who have actually read the book or, you know, that it isn't just like a bunch of people who are in mass downvoting stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and some places actually do have those policies to stop like oh, Rotten yeah. Tomatoes because the same thing did happen with Rotten Tomatoes and a bunch of movies being, yeah, being bombed before they came out yeah. by liars. So um, there are systems that and- like, yeah, and they need to be across the board. I mean, yeah, because it is, I mean, the people had gone, had gravitated toward user reviews as a way of trying to gauge content and quality across the board, not just content, but items and services. Um, and it is, it's a serious problem. And and there's, it, it, now you can get prosecuted actually for leaving false reviews in, in some circumstances. So speaking of um, prosecutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, speaking of prosecutions, the there was a kind of a, a nice final ending to the infamous scene that happened in Montgomery, Alabama earlier this year, where a, a black boat captain had tried to dock on the river there, and this white boat owner came and attacked him, and his and all of his passengers seemingly tried to stop him from docking <laughs> the boat, which was the reserve spot for the riverboat and there was a big assault and uh, it became a national national thing that it was an extremely viral video people saw uh, there there were multiple recordings from all of that and we everybody saw what happened with that but nonetheless two of the men that were involved with the fight the white men had tried to press charges against the black boat co-captain uh, and fortunately, over uh, the past few days, the the government of the I guess it was the state a state court judge threw out the prosecution attempt of pressing charges, and that case has now there's only one case uh, one person left in it, and and that was involving a black man who had picked up a chair and started hitting someone who and he had not been attacked so. He's probably going to go down on that one, <laughs> but you know, it was a nice, it was a nice thing to see from the court system and, and kind of rare in which all the guilty parties and the two men pleaded guilty as well. So yeah, it was, it was a nice little coda to how that happened earlier. And uh, likewise, there was a, another, what feels like a, a sort of a just outcome from Atlanta, Hannah Payne, who I don't know if you've heard this story before, but she's this, I think at the time she was a 23, 23 year old white woman who was in traffic and witnessed a black man named Kenneth Herring, who was in his early 60s. He hit a truck. And according to like witnesses, he seemed sort of out of it. But long story short, he got back in his car and drove off and she decided to track him down despite the fact that the uh, dispatcher that she was on the phone with kept telling her not to do that and ultimately got out of her car and confronted him and shot him and killed him. And today she was found guilty on all charges. She'll be sentenced on December 15th. But I mean, just the kind of entitlement of 
this woman to go after this man. It wasn't even her car that he hit. Um, the people on the scene who were part of this trial and even before it and news stories said that it seemed like maybe he suffered a stroke or something. Like he just really seemed very confused. So whatever the, the sort of conditions were of why he got back in the car and drove away is kind of irrelevant. Yeah, obviously the point that this woman <laughs> decided to deputize herself and chase him down. And then her lawyer argued that she's just a young girl who was in the wrong situation. I mean, she was an adult who chose to do this and then killed someone and she's going to go to jail. And I'm not a huge fan of the carceral system, but in, in this case, I just, it, it felt like something needed to happen. Yeah. Well, and she also claimed that she was trying to be a messenger for the for police. For the police, yeah, <laughs> I love that. I'm not going to go into a speech about the lengthy history of white people self-deputizing to deal with Black people in extrajudicial judicial ways that often involve violence, but this feels like a repeat of a story that we've seen so many times, and it usually doesn't end this way, so I was uh, have to admit pleased with the outcome. Yeah, and it's good we didn't have to have a prolonged bullshit session about that one in this country so yeah there are some good things that happen once in a while and it's important that we note that yeah and i guess a it's not not so good of a thing for most people though but one good thing for donald trump is is happening and that is that he's he is launching another line of nft images of himself and it, the, it's these just, are all going to be based on his this is a mugshot series right isn't yeah. And this time it's even more of a gimmick because one of the things that they, they promise people if they buy one is that they will get a piece of the suit that he wore while he was getting his mug shot. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that, that Bible story of, of the woman touching Jesus's coat as mm -hmm. he walked past her. This is the political version of that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I can just imagine some of of these Trump fans being like, "I have this this piece of fabric, and Donald Trump touched it." I mean, it absolutely mm -hmm. will motivate some of the those buyers. Yeah, it will. And and last time Trump did this, all of his NFTs they sold out pretty quickly, and then like every other NFT, they immediately plummeted in value. I mean, it's just like at this point. I mean, really, the the elderly Trump base is the only people dumb enough to yeah. be buying. Yeah, they they are NFTs not keeping up crypto. with the, the blockchain or anything that relates to to it. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, they just exactly. want to, they and want a little piece of Trump, and they'll be very happy with this. So that's right. And that, at this point, whoever is still falling for that or emptying their savings account to get to get more to get closer to Donald Trump, it's like I can't even feel bad for you anymore. Yeah, Not that I ever yeah, have, no. but now, I'm <laughs> now, I pretend, now I really don't feel bad for you. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, and we'll see. He hasn't released the images yet, but last time, and I did a, a story about this, that they had many of the images were using unlicensed photos that they had stolen from Shutterstock. Would a Trump story be without some sort of angle that involves just even more grifting than you could imagine? <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yep. Got to have at least some of that. <laughs> well, but just uh, one last thing about Donald, speaking of Donald Trump, Nacho Doritos um, liquor now exists 
I don't know if you. <laughs> Orange. Ha ha ha. Um. Yeah. So there is a nacho cheese flavored alcohol booze drink that is actually brought to you by Doritos. That is going to be released, which I think is kind of crazy. And I don't know. I actually sent this to my boyfriend because I was kind of curious, like what he would think about it. It was sort of like a ha ha. But his response was. Aside from a Bloody Mary, I can't really see how this is going to work in any other context. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, I guess I hadn't even read that far. They mentioned, I think one of the recommended uses was Bloody Marys. Hmm, okay. Yeah, I guess. But I guess people could have that with just putting it on the rim. <laughs> if they wanted it, they don't have to have the drink of it. I don't know, like, to me, when I saw it, it was it was like one of those i think i feel like every so often companies they want some buzz for themselves and they'll release some controversial or ridiculous yeah. product and it's not to get the product itself to sell it's rather to get the name of the company and their other stuff to become more prominent but i think this is bit. the kind of thing that like just out of sheer curiosity i mean if someone offered just me for the a taste of it i would yeah i would absolutely try it yeah, but would you buy it though, Callie? <laughs> I probably wouldn't buy it. I probably wouldn't buy it. Well, I guess it, yeah, it, it sounds then that it's the gift for someone who has everything then. <laughs> yeah. So I, is it coming out before Christmas? Yeah, so it looks like it launched on December 12th, but only in New York and California. So guys who don't live in the, in the states where we do, you guys are missing out. Or this is what these coastal... <laughs> This is what this being is what a coastal, coastal elite, elite is all about. <laughs> Goodbye lattes, hello nacho cheese in liquid form with booze added. Yeah, so if anybody gets their hands on one of those, they can sure let us know. <laughs> well, I am going to do some work that is going to make the day seem a little less annoying than it was. Oh, okay. Well, I've got to, yeah, I've got to pick up the girls from their school. Yep. Okay. All right. I'm going to hop off. All right. Okay, see All you right. next time. Bye. Bye.